Hey, how you doing, Roger Rabbit fans? This week's episode is being brought to you by the wonderful world of me, Gary K. Wolf, creator of Roger Rabbit, Jessica Rabbit, and the other loonies in Toontown. For more about me, my books, and my upcoming animation projects, visit my website, GaryWolf.com. For more about Roger Rabbit, stay tuned! You came here to get your weekly theme park fix To hear Jeff and George in their bag of tricks Why don't you sit back and enjoy the show Hello and welcome to CommuniCore Weekly, the greatest online show, home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And welcome to our special Who Framed Roger Rabbit themed episode, in case you couldn't tell by the awesome opening song. Wasn't that lovely, George? <laughs> I thought it was fantastic and it's, amazing and cool yes. yes thank you so much to our good friend Corey celeste for her amazing vocal talent on that song uh be sure go go check her out at soundcloud.com slash cory with a k k-o-r-i dash celeste c-e-l-e-s-t-e so you can hear more of her awesome music thank you yeah, very much Corey. she's got some good stuff up there so we really appreciate her helping her helping us out not help her helping her with this as well i mean she did a much better job than either of us could have done to be quite honest with you yeah obviously on several aspects yes but at the end of the show i'm actually going to include a ver- her version of why don't you do right the-, the song that jessica rabbit actually sings in the film who uh frame roger rabbit because it was so good and that's what led me to ask her to do this theme song to begin with so <laughs> be sure to tune in at the end of the episode all the way through we're forcing you to listen to the end to hear that song but anyway roger rabbit themed episode are you excited george Oh, totally. I'm totes excited. Let's talk about rabbits. It's time for Disney History! Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a 1988 animated fantasy comedy film noir directed by Robert Zemeckis. Now, the film was a revolutionary mix of live action and animation and accomplished things never seen on the screen before and still remains one of my all-time favorite films ever. Definitely. You know, and it quickly shows the viewers how off the wall it is when it begins with a simple credit sequence with the cool, jazzy film noir score and then BAM! 
the soundtrack scratches, and then the upbeat cartoon music begins to blare, and it really kind of was like a wake-up call to the audience, both in viewing and in movie history, because no other film has replicated the feat of gathering all these multiple properties from rival studios together in one film. And it was basically film history being made right there. Yeah, so to recap quickly, for those of you who haven't seen the film, and if you haven't, why haven't you? Because, let's see, because the requirements are Back to the Future, Doctor Who, um, well, Princess Bride. We'll have a list on our website. Yeah, anyway. we'll put that list up. Um, <laughs> the, the movie is a noir-esque tale set in 1947, and it features a conspiracy plot centered on a political corruption and suburban expansion movement involving the gritty urban city of Toontown and the glamour and glitz of Tinseltown. Roger Rabbit is set up and framed for the death of Marvin Acme, and it's up to Eddie Valiant to figure out who really did the crime and why. The film relishes its noir history, but it's 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 still a kid's movie, so there are cartoons all over the place. Walt Disney Productions purchased the rights to the novel Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary Wolf in 1981. And the studio then brought in Steven Spielberg to executive produce through his production company, Amblin Entertainment. Walt Disney Productions originally wanted Terry Gillum to direct, but he found it too technically challenging, so he passed. And Spielberg, having just worked with Robert Zemeckis on a little film called Back to the Future, yeah. he actually suggested him and brought him on board to direct the live-action sequences. Uh, Richard Williams was put in charge of the animation sequences. So, in reality, Roger Rabbit is one of those movies that today would probably never be made. But technically, and in terms of the properties that would need to be licensed to achieve the look and feel that the film has, you know, today. It was complicated. Uh, the production was complicated from day one. Spielberg, of course, was instrumental in the licensing negotiations. He worked closely with studios such as Warner Brothers, the Fleischer Studios, Felix the Cat Productions, Turner Entertainment, and Universal Pictures. Spielberg's name and his smooth negotiating convinced the separate studios to, you know, quote unquote, lend their characters to the production at an unbelievable flat rate of $5,000 per character. And, and that was it. Just $5,000. You know, don't. I mean, we would have done it for cheaper. Oh, yeah, exactly. We <laughs> I mean, could have had Jeff and George so much cheaper. I would have given for a dollar, we would have appeared in the yeah. film. Well, That's two, fine. Two. So we can split the each have a dollar. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So, yeah, there, there were no back ends involved, no residuals, just a one-time flat fee of $5,000. Now, think of how many various characters appeared in the film, and that is a lot of money. But with Spielberg's goodwill, he could do it, and it was done. You know, with a few additional stipulations on behalf of the studios for some of the major properties, of course. You know, for instance, Warner Brothers stipulated that their characters, such as Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny, must receive equal screen time, dialogue, and billing as Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse. <laughs> so, in a brilliant touch, the great Mel Blanc was hired to reprise his iconic voice characterizations of Bugs, Daffy, Tweety, Porky, and Sylvester. And this was one of the last times that Blanc would go to voice his immortal characters before he passed away in 1989. Another unforgettable moment has Mae Questel coming back to voice Betty Boop, her legendary cartoon character from the 1920s and 30s. But really, Spielberg's feat of bringing all these characters together in the same film was unparalleled in Hollywood business history, and he was rewarded well for his efforts. His contract included extensive creative control and a large percentage of the box office profits. 
Disney maintained merchandising rights, of course. Because they're not dumb, that's not why. <laughs> so, Spielberg's original choice for the role of hard-boiled P.I. Eddie Valiant was actually Harrison Ford, but Ford's asking price was way too high. And then Bill Murray was another early choice, but because he was so hard to locate and contact, Spielberg and Zemeckis decided to pass on him also. Sylvester Stallone, Robert Redford, Jack Nicholson, and Ed Harris were all considered before the late great character actor Bob Hoskins was finally chosen for the lead. And to get the feel of working with imaginary characters, Hoskins studied his young daughter, you know, because she was hanging out and talking to her imaginary friends all the time, so it really helped him. <laughs> so after the filming was done, Hoskins reportedly suffered from hallucinations since he had to imagine working with all these cartoon characters all day long for a very long time. Yeah, sort of like at that film school? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. okay. So Christopher Lloyd, who had already worked with Zemeckis in Back to the Future, eh, he took on the lead villain role of Judge Doom. John Cleese also auditioned for the role, but Spielberg and Zemeckis both thought that no one would take a member of Monty Python seriously as a villain. So it went to Lloyd. Lloyd avoided blinking his eyes on camera in order to perfectly portray the sinister character. Perhaps the most popular character, at least among the men, was Jessica Rabbit, <laughs> Roger's bombshell wife, and probably the first cartoon character I ever had a crush on. <laughs> um, not the last notice I said that. Yeah, just the first. <laughs> Jessica was actually portrayed by Kathleen Turner, who is strangely uncredited for her work, and her singing voice was provided by Spielberg's then-wife, Amy Irving. Wow. So Jessica's sultry character was reportedly based on four film famous femme fatales. The quadruple amalgam consisted of Red, the sexy lounge singer made famous in Tex Avery cartoons, such as Red Hot Riding Hood, Rita Hayworth in Gilda, Veronica Lake with her peekaboo hairstyle, and at Zemeckis' insistence, the look of Lauren Bacall. Now, the film's title role went to a young stand-up comedian actor named Charles Flesher. Now, although an animated character in the film, Charles insisted on getting dressed as Roger, you know, rabbit suit, suspenders, bow tie and all, every day, standing off camera and feeding his line to Bob Hoskins the entire time. Now, Roger was actually a blend of several characters as well. Uh, Tex Avery's uh, cashew nut-shaped head, uh, a swatch of red hair like Droopy's, Goofy's overalls, Porky Pig's bow tie, Mickey Mouse's gloves, and Bugs Bunny cheeks and ears. <laughs> so the film's production was notoriously over budget and over schedule. Disney balked at the originally projected $50 million production, uh, and, but they greenlit the film uh, with a $29.9 million budget. And even at that cost, it was the most expensive animated film ever greenlit. During production, when the budget had escalated past $40 million, Michael Eisner, who was in charge at the time, nearly shut down production. Jeffrey Katzenberg uh, was in charge of Disney Animation at the time and res was responsible for talking Eisner out of shutting down the production. Spielberg's draw was said to have helped, you know, kind of sway him as well. And Katzenberg argued at the time that the hybrid live action plus animation would save Disney's animation's ailing pre-Rissonnaissance uh, uh, department. And, and technically speaking, the film was quite the achievement. The production utilized Vista Vision cameras, which came with a higher resolution and was a widescreen variant of the 35mm format. In fact, some of the same techniques used in VistaVision eventually evolved into 70mm IMAX formats. The cameras were also equipped with motion control technology, uh, allowing for scenes to be shot with the same movements and focal lengths multiple times. 
On set, there were actually rubber mannequins that stood in for the main cartoon characters to kind of establish the sight lines and give the actors something to act against so it wasn't just nothing. Mm -hmm. um, filming, which began on December 2nd, 1986, lasted for seven months with an additional month in LA at Industrial Light and Magic for the necessary blue screen Toontown effects. And you have to remember that this was a film that was made before CGI or computer generated shots uh, down entirely in post-production. You know, a lot of things had to happen on set in order for the animation to work later on. The tunes are not merely walking next to the humans, but touching them, interacting with the actors and their environment. For example, early in the film, Bob Hoskins is talking to Jessica Rabbit, where she kind of uses her charms on him. Jessica messes Eddie's hair, picks up his tie, and then kisses him, leaving the slightest smudge of lipstick on his cheek. Now, remember that Jessica is animated, no matter how much we dream otherwise, <laughs> and Bob Hoskins has to act out the scene by himself. The physical effects team has fishing wire on Hoskins' tie so that it could slowly come up when Jessica is grabbing it. Eddie's hair is rustled from behind him using wires and invisible techniques as well. Finally, the slight smudge of lipstick is actually animation simply edited into the, into the frame. Okay, now that is just one short scene in the movie. Now think about every other scene mm -hmm. where a cartoon interacts with the real world and how much work had to go into planning that. And most of the time, Hoskins is by himself on screen. To me, this is one of the greatest underrated performances of all time. I mean, he does amazing things with the role, and we forget that he was actually by himself for most of the running time when it was being filmed. You know, every time Hoskins is grabbing onto Roger, he's actually just cupping his hands, you know, at, at grabbing the hand of an invisible person. It, it's just in insane. His performance is remarkable. And there is never a second where we don't fully believe that Eddie Valiant is actually interacting with his cartoon counterparts. I want to stop the recording and go watch the movie. Can we do that? We can, but but we won't. Okay. We okay, need to finish anyway. this episode, George. Okay. I'm sorry. All right, all right, all right, all right. So, well, you know, post-production lasted an additional 14 months, with one of the biggest challenges being rotoscoping all the live-action sequences, which involved drawing animation cells over all of the live-action footage. This proved to be an even more of a challenge because uh, Zemeckis likes to use dynamic camera movements and had a large amount of action shots. ILM, or Industrial Light and Magic, also added to the process by completing three lighting layers that were optically printed onto the animation, adding dimensionality, subjecting the characters to the same lighting that already existed in the filmed live action sequences. Altogether, 326 animators worked full time on the film. The first test screening audience for Who Framed Roger Rabbit was a complete and total disaster. Um, <laughs> it was shown to a crowd consisting mainly of 18 to 19 year olds, and the audience hated the film, and reportedly many of them just walked out of it. Uh, Walt Disney Productions got cold feet and wanted to make a lot of edits, but director Zemeckis had final cut approval and refused to change one single scene or shot mm. of the film. Obviously, I'm not. I would have been about 19 or 20 at the time this came out, so I'm not their target audience. Clearly, Clearly I was. Not. Because I wouldn't have walked out. I didn't walk out. Okay, well, as anyone who's seen the film knows, its tone is quite dark. Though it does play for children, the darker elements, you know, sexual innuendo, drinking, guns, and violence, aren't the typical topics you'd find in a children's animated feature. Now, given the dark nature of the film, and Zemeckis and Spielberg's unwillingness to adjust the tone, Disney opted to release the film through its Touchstone Pictures banner on June 22, 1988. It opened to $11.2 million uh, on only 
1,045 screens, and eventually going on to earn $156.5 million domestically and an additional $173.25 internationally. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was the second highest grosser of 1988 behind Rain Man. Now, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was a rare culmination of business practices, you know, technological achievement, and innovative storytelling. The film would go on to win four Academy Awards, including Best Film Editing, Best Effects Visual, and Best Effects Sound Editing, in addition to a Special Achievement Award for Animation Direction uh, by Richard Williams. The film also received nominations for Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, and Best Sound. But the film achieved is perhaps inconceivable now. You know, to this day, Roger Rabbit stands as a marvel of studio cooperation and animation innova innovation. And when the, you know the film has aged, the moral is how easily it can still be enjoyed by people of all ages, even today. I mean, it's a fantastic film, and it, it totally is. holds up. Yeah, and I can remember sitting in the theater in social context at the time, and could not believe how they did some of those effects and how amazing it was. Stepping outside and going, well, I know they added the animated figures late later, but wow, it really looks like they're in there in the environments. It really was quite fantastic. Still is. Insane. Still Insane. Well. Yes. So we want to know what you think about Jessica Rabbit. I mean, who framed Roger Rabbit? <laughs> you know, give us a call on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary Wolf. And this is a book I just finished recently. I did, you know, put off reading the book uh, for a long time because I knew that there were a lot of differences between the book and the film. It's not that I didn't want to read the book, but I'd heard from you know a lot of other Disney fans that the book didn't match the film and that they didn't like it. Well, they were sort of right. It didn't match the film, but I still really liked the book a lot. I really enjoyed it. Um, so getting into the book, what really surprised me was how different the book and the film actually are. Minus a few of the character names and some of the attributes of the world, there aren't many other similarities. We have reviewed Who Framed Roger Rabbit before, and you guys know how much we love the book, I mean the movie, uh, but it, but the book itself, or the movie itself, is geared more towards family, while the book is more adults-oriented. I don't mean it's like adult-oriented, like the stuff, you know, you gotta hide, but more for adults, caters to adults. So right off the bat, there are some interesting divergences. The, the tunes in question are not from animated films, but from comic strips. They're still called tunes, but this is sort of the basis for the entire comic strip industry. Tunes are photographed, um, and, and then the finished pictures are turned into the strips that you would read in the newspaper. And, you know, so they're making the newspaper comics instead of filming animated shorts. The book also takes place in the present or at least the 1980s present, instead of the 1940s or so of the film. We still have a, a lot of the main characters. Eddie Valiant still plays the hard-boiled gumshoe detective. Roger Rabbit is still a little goofy and out there, but we also see a slightly different side to the rabbit. Jessica Rabbit, she plays a very similar character, but we also see a darkness, and there's a lot more sensuality about her in the book itself. 
we meet a, a handful of other human and cartoon or toon related characters, but no one that really ties directly into the film. You know, except Baby Herman. He's there, and he has a very small cameo. You know, even though he has the chops of a fifty-year-old. <laughs> but I'm pumped. Thank you. So the the crux of the book is that someone has killed Roger Rabbit, and Valiant gets pulled into the mystery. And based on the particulars of the Toon world, Roger Rabbit is still a part of the story and is one of the main three connectors between the book and the film. You know, basically, you know, sort of what we looked at earlier, Eddie, Jessica, and Roger are the same characters with a few minor differences. Anyone who's really a diehard fan of the book, uh, of the film, excuse me, should read this book because it gives you a lot of insight into the characters and you can see how Disney changed things, not just to add other animated characters to match, you know, Disney's history of animation, um, but also to see what sort of Gary Wolf's world looked like at the time as well. The, the book, as I mentioned, is a little bit more of a hard-boiled crime noir fiction that you would expect after viewing the film. One thing that was difficult to get used to was that all the tunes spoke with comic speech bubbles. So the dialogue from the tunes would sort of float around. It looked like a dialogue bubble that you would see in a comic strip or a, a graphic novel or something like that. And sometimes they would stay there, sometimes they would sink to the floor. Occasionally the word bubbles would be used as weapons. So it was a little bit different. Uh, I can imagine sometimes the floor got pretty crowded in there. Uh, overall, I really, really enjoyed this book as a standalone novel, and I'm very interested now in finishing the rest of the series. Uh, it did felt like uh, a little bit like I was doing some archaeology with the story, you know, and that I was trying to figure out how the story went from Gary Wolf's novel to the more sanitized and child-friendly Disney version, but it still held my interest, and it kept me turning the pages, really, until the end of the book. Very satisfying read. Really enjoyed it, and I do recommend, you know, visit your local library to pick up a copy or you know, buy a copy on Amazon because it's not that expensive. But uh, this week's book was Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary Wolf. If it's a legend that you seek, come on and take a peek at the window of the week. Yes, Toontown at Disneyland is all about the hustle and bustle of the cartoons living in it. And though this seems, uh, you know, it leads to a more suburban part of the town, much different than what we see in the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, but above City Hall and the Five and Dime, there is a window a tribute to the man who started it all, and it reads, Laughogram Films Incorporated, a reel of fun, W.E. Disney, directing animator and of course it's paying tribute to walt disney himself which is pretty neat now you may ask why aren't you doing the eddie valiant window in hollywood studios well it's perfect for this segment but we actually didn't cover it <laughs> way back in season two when we didn't realize we were going to do a roger rabbit themed episode in season four yes but, we didn't get the time travel till season three right? yes exactly okay. so had we okay. known I would yeah. have switched it up with something else. And you guys are going to love next week's episode. Yeah, totally. Me. It's so good, guys. Yes. It's yes. so good. Anyway, just for giggles, let's just talk about it again really quick. Eddie's window is in Echo Lake, and it reads, Eddie Valiant, Private Investigations, All Crime, Surveillance, Missing Persons. And next to his window is another window with a Roger Rabbit-shaped hole, much like he bursts out of R. Cameron's window in the film. So there you go. That's your double windows of the week 
Roger Rabbit related and Toontown related. So, oh, does that mean we need a new theme for Windows of the Week? It's the legend that you seek. <laughs> no, we can still use the same one. It's fine. Oh. I'll just add an S at the end of it. It's the Every time Windows. You You'll hear me say Windows of the Week in the middle of the song. And really? if you don't hear it, are you going to actually I'm edit that in there? No, I'm too lazy, guys. I didn't think so. Okay. I'm way All too right. lazy. You don't know what you know till we know you. You, know, you just don't know. There's one little fact we bet you didn't. One little fact we bet you didn't know. So while we're talking about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, there's a common question about the film. Why is there no question mark in the film's title? George, why is there no question mark in the film's title? I'm... Totally glad and surprised you asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is an old Hollywood superstition that a question mark in a film's title is considered bad luck. And considering how much money the film made, clearly leaving the question mark off worked. Now we know you. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. When you're waiting in line for Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin in Toontown at Disneyland, when you get to the loading area, you'll see a lot of license plates on the wall. And a lot of them are very clever references to some of the other famous animated features and characters, such as 2N Town for Toontown, BB Wolf for The Big Bad Wolf, Mr. Toad obviously for Mr. Toad, uh, 1DRLND for Wonderland, I had to spell it out to make sure I said it correctly, <laughs> <laughs> this one is pretty good too. 1D and PTR for Wendy and Peter. Uh, I'm L8 for I'm late, obviously, the white rabbits. Uh, CAP cap 10 and an HK, Captain Hook. L Merm 8 for Little Mermaid. 101 <laughs> DLMN for 101 Dalmatians. Fan TC for Fantasy. I mean, there's so many. RS2 Cat for the Aristocats. ZPD2DA for Zippity Doodah, and Little Pig, or Three Little Pigs for Three Little Pigs. So many vanity plates. I love vanity plates. I want to get one of these for myself, to be honest with you. That's awesome. It's wonderful, and I kind of just want to steal one off the wall and put it in my car. But <laughs> I won't. Could, right? Oh, oh, and that's right. You're not going to do that. No, I won't, because that's, right, that's, that's against right. the rules. I don't want to get in trouble. Well, well, speaking of something else that's awesome, why don't you tell everybody about this week's prize winner? That's right. This Yay. year, the winner for the Year of a Million or So Limited Time Cadets, uh, which, again, you can still send in your, your stuff for by sending us an email at communicoweekly at gmail.com. Give us your name and your mailing address and your birth date. That way we can mm -hmm. add you to the list. But... The winner this week will receive a copy of Who Plugged Roger Rabbit by Gary Wolf, the sequel to Who Censored Roger Rabbit, but technically it's a sequel to the film because, well, I won't give away Who Censored Roger Rabbit. But anyway, <laughs> it's a good book, and the winner for this week is Sarah J. from Hamilton, Ohio. Hooray! Congratulations. I hope you enjoy Who Plugged Roger Rabbit because I do quite enjoy that book. <laughs> yes. And of course, a big thank you to Corey again uh, for her amazing theme song, and be sure to listen to her version uh, of the other song at the end of the show. You can find her at soundcloud.com slash Corey-Celeste. It's K-O-R-I-C-E-L-E-S-T-E. And of course, on Instagram at SupCorey, because she's clever like that. Ah, that is, yeah, SupCorey. SupCorey. So, hey, sup, Corey. That's what you should do. You guys should friend her and then comment on a photo. Sup, Corey. 
because I'm sure she hasn't heard that before. <laughs> Probably I'm not. I'm going to text her right now and apologize. And then say that's enough to her. Say yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that's the song. All. And now that you hate us. Um, <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. Be sure to leave us a comment wherever you watch or listen to the show, whether it be on YouTube or iTunes. Yes, email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com to enter the amazing contest. We're giving a prize away every week. We're so excited about it. And as Jeff always says, just to say, hey, you can say sup to us. Sup, Jeff and George. Yeah, send us an email. Just say that. Just say that. Sup, Jeff and George. <laughs> also, be sure to like us on the Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imaginerding. He's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. And be sure to visit the Communa store at communicoreweekly.com where you can get a copy of Communicore Weekly the Musical and some fantastic Communicore Weekly shirts. And of course, if you want your official cadet membership card and some Communicore Weekly stickers, be sure to send us a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432 Orange, California, 92856. And if you want to do right by us, visit patreon.com slash weekly and help support the greatest online show. Very well done, by the way. I liked how you did Try. that. Throw that in because, you know, you, we can say sup, Corey. Sup, Again. Corey. Sup, Corey. <laughs> um, for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest and most cartoony online show. I like the sound of Some other man